Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is a special edition of Taking Apart Terror, and you've probably heard something about this. Kabul is falling now. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport. As well as this. There has been a suicide bombing at Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Where crowds... The world looked on in shock as the Taliban tore through Afghanistan in the wake of the Western forces' departure. And then in horror as suicide bombers detonated their devices outside the main airport. But who are the Taliban and what are their aims? And it wasn't them that were responsible for the bombings. It was something called ISIS-K or isis Khorasan a name most of us were hearing for the first time. Our aim with Taking Apart Terror is to explain how terrorist groups work, what they do and why. So in this special programme, we're going to try and unravel the current situation in Afghanistan and as we face the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, understand what it means for the country, the region and the world. Or as we're calling this edition, Afghanistan, has our world just become more dangerous? We've gathered together a panel, all of whom have specialist knowledge of Afghanistan, its past, its present, and have some handle on its future. So we can get going with this as quickly as possible. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves and tell us where you are, starting with you, Sadaf. Hi, I'm Sadaf Chowdhury. I'm an investigative journalist currently in Kabul. And Emerita? Hi, my name is Emerita Torres. I'm a senior research fellow at the Sufan Centre. We're an independent nonprofit centre focused on global security. Cool. Nabi? Nabi Sahak, I'm an independent researcher uh, currently in Washington, D.C. And Shiraz? I'm Dr. Shiraz Mayer. I'm a lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. First of all, we are going to establish who the Taliban are. Shiraz, we know the name of this group, but not everybody really knows exactly what the group is or where they came from. Could you help us with that? Yeah, the Taliban really uh, follow on from the uh, defeat uh, and withdrawal of the Soviet Union from uh, Afghanistan in, in the 1980s. And, and the Taliban were, were an actor in the civil war that followed. They were able to take Kabul and, and a large part of the country, but not in its entirety. They've never held you know, this amount of, of territory before. Um, but they took Kabul in 1996 uh, and, in fact, were quite brutal and dramatic in the way that they captured the capital at that time. So the Taliban arriving, as it were, at the gates of Kabul, then entering Kabul, why there was so much consternation around that, why there was so much um, trepidation, why there was that crush at the airport. But also, you know, the, if you were looking at the messaging coming out from the Taliban, they were also trying to say, look, we're, we're different and quite careful to show that they weren't going to march into Kabul this time the way they had done in 1996. Emerita, if we could just open that up, um, how have they managed to take over so quickly when the West withdrew? We were uh, over for to over 20 years um, training, funding and equipping the Afghan forces and the Taliban just really steamrolled. And I think it has to do with the Taliban gaining power. Attacks have increased. They've taken control over more provinces uh, throughout the country over time. As the U.S. was seeking to depart, decreasing troops, decreasing support over time and negotiating directly with the Taliban uh, without the Afghan government, and we also saw that there were negotiated surrenders taking place between the Taliban and local Afghan government officials. And so that really sort of created a clear path for the Taliban to take over Kabul. What do you think their aim is, Emerita? 
Well, for the Taliban, you know, it's really, it's governance, it's global recognition. Um, you know, they are quite happy that the U.S. is now out. It's a victory for them uh, to control their country. So I see this as their long-term political win. Nabi, you've, you've lived through this uh, two decades ago. Can you tell us why did you leave Afghanistan? I left uh, right after 9-1-1 attacks happened. So it was, uh, it was a time of chaos. It was a time similar to what we're witnessing today, really, in, in a general sense, where um, Taliban were overthrown by the U.S. So there was a vacuum and people were um, um, hoping to find better lives. And I was one of those people who left uh, with thousands of others. So just to check, I've got this right. Okay, so Taliban had been fighting against the government. So just a little bit of history here. The Russians invade Afghanistan. The Mujahideen fight them. There's a power vacuum after the Russians leave. The Taliban are formed and then they shelter Al-Qaeda. We'll get onto Al-Qaeda later. Al-Qaeda are the people, including Osama bin Laden, who perpetrated 9-11. And that's the reason the Western forces invaded in the first place. And that's when you left. Before that, you were serving with the Afghan army, fighting against the Taliban. In this latest iteration of all this, we've seen the Taliban storm through the country. And people have been asking, why didn't the Afghan army put up much of a fight? That is unfortunate that such a statement goes around, that the Afghan soldiers didn't fight. Uh, it's the furthest thing from the truth. If you just really go back, not even to 2001, not even to 2010, if you just go back to 2015 with, with the takeover of Ghani, the transition from Karzai. So hang on, that was the changeover from Hamid Karzai to Ashraf Ghani as president after the 2015 election, right? As a matter of fact, I was in Kabul when that transition occurred. I was, a, I was in an advisory capacity, so I was witnessing everything. The morale and, and the boost and the confidence uh, for a new Afghanistan, because people were definitely complaining and were tired from the corruption under the Karzai's government. There was a revived hope and revived energy. And that's, that explains why 50,000 soldiers gave their lives from 2015 until, until now. To say that they didn't fight is not true. Okay, so Sudef, we've learned about a little bit about what the history was. What is it like right now? I mean, you're in Kabul. Right now, the best way to describe it is uncertainty. The Taliban don't seem to have very much control. They really want to ascertain like some kind of image that they are really have got a handle on things. I was one of the first reporters to ask at the press conference about the significant number of ISIS Khorasan that had infiltrated at the airport. The Taliban here did not want to discuss it. In fact, they said that it was a hyped up situation by the Americans to deflect how they hadn't been able to manage any real semblance of control at the airport. But the reality was that ISIS was there way before the Taliban took control a couple of weeks ago. They were recruiting heavily in safe houses across the city. They had really engaged in Kabul a significant time ago. So reality is people are not just dealing with economic uncertainty in Kabul, they're dealing with a significant threat level that is not being really thought about by the governance. Shiraz, uh, we hear all these names. Uh, Sudaf was just mentioning one there. 
We hear uh, ISIS-K, we hear uh, TTP. Who are these people? So it's been claimed by Islamic State or their chapter in Afghanistan, often referred to as ISK or ISIS Khorasan, which is, of course, the historic name uh, for um, a province that covers most of modern-day Afghanistan, uh, the southern parts of the stands, which are to the north, and uh, northeastern uh, uh, parts of, of Iran as well. Look, it, it is a local chapter, it's a franchise, if you want to call it that. Um, this is a kind of tried and tested uh, model that these groups use, where they are proliferating through localised chapters in their areas. You mentioned uh, uh, the TTP as well, that's Tehreek uh, al-Taliban Pakistan, or you know, better known as uh, the Pakistani Taliban. And it's worth saying between all of these groups, you know... Th- th- the, the sort of big fault line within jihadist movements is fundamentally how they regard their relationship with power. How do they want to interact with established structures of power, whether that's in their own country if they're not in power, or in the case of the Taliban now, for example, with the international system. You know, do you have an office in Doha and, and do you want recognition at the UN? You know, these are the, the most, uh, you could say, materially significant in terms of what distinguishes these groups. Thank you. Uh, Emerita, what's the relationship between ISIS-K and the Taliban? Would you say that their aims sometimes overlap? Well, they're, they're really arch enemies and, and rivals, um, and they compete over resources. They're you know, somewhat ideologically different. You know, ISIS has a much more extreme interpretation of Islam than, than the Taliban, I would say. Um, and violence from ISIS-K really creates a headache for the Taliban because they promise that their victory in the country will bring Afghanistan, you know, finally to peace. But what we're seeing is, you know, not the case right now. And ISIS-K, in the meantime, is trying to seek to, you know, remain relevant, to rebuild its ranks with the focus on recruitment, training new supporters, you know, trying to attract the ranks of the Taliban who are rejecting the peace process. Sudaf, I mean, you're, you're on the ground. Do you think uh, the Taliban will be able to defeat Daesh? Or will they need you know, international governments to come in and help them? I think they will be able to defeat Daesh. It's if and when they want to. They were using the American base here as a deflection to say that the ISIS was supposed to be managed by the Americans because the attack was on that side of the airport. But now there are no Western troops here. Any danger that takes place, any attacks that takes place, they are fully responsible for that. They are looking for safe houses. They are looking for uh, ISIS Khorasan members disguised as Taliban. The way they search them is very different to any other person going about their daily routine. So they are doing their best in terms of street checks, you know, body checks. They are doing very well at that. But I just don't think they actually have a strategy in place to deal with the, the recruitment drive. The people that are in higher up positions in Ice Khorasan, they are still not being located. And I know that's a significant stress, which I was told uh, by a confidential source. That is becoming a stressful situation for them. They are trying to target the people who are making the decisions. And at this point, that remains a quite a confusing task for them because they don't know which direction to go to because they were actually quite surprised how quickly they moved into Kabul. So I think in terms of having optics internationally, they need to really create security in this country and they really will not allow another attack. They have made it clear to me when I spoke to them last that we will do whatever it takes to remove this. But right now we don't see it as a significant threat. 
But I also think that's very carefully controlled language being used by the Taliban because they're very cautious in how they speak to the media because what transpired at the airport was even a surprise to them. So we've got this incredibly complex situation where you've got one extremist group actually acting as a disruptor for another one. Emerita, maybe this is a good time to add Al-Qaeda into the mix. The headlines have all been about the Taliban and ISIS-K, Daesh-K. What about Al-Qaeda? Are they done? Not at all. You know, Al-Qaeda has been weakened over time, but certainly not, not defeated. It's been quietly growing a presence regionally. You know, when we think about, you know, pre-9-11, there was around, I don't know, 400 fighters who pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. And today we've seen between 30 and 40,000 members um, that boast affiliates around the world. So certainly not. Um, their survival strategy has been creating branches around the world, you know, not just in, in the Middle East, in the Sahel, in Somalia, etc. So Al-Qaeda is certainly alive and well, and there's, there's an enduring determination there. So we should be very careful about, you know, Al-Qaeda and what it's up to. And now that they have, you know, the potential to work and have safe haven in Afghanistan, that's going to be a, a bigger threat for us, not just for, you know, not just for the United States, but for the Western world. OK, so now we've got three definite groups, names we all know. We've got the Taliban, Al-Qaeda and the many names of ISIS, ISIS-K, Daesh, whatever you want to call them. So you've got Taliban, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But for a lot of us, we don't know much more than the names. Shiraz, can you give us a quick guide? What are these groups thinking? What are they trying to do? And how do they relate to each other? There's probably two key points, right? Al-Qaeda starts this process of what you'd call global jihad, fighting the world in an attempt to have sort of extraterritorial jihadi aims and aspirations. I think Al-Qaeda, through what we can see um, in places such as Mali and in in northern uh, Syria, has been on a journey, in essence, to recoil a little bit and to move back towards what might be called the localized jihadi campaigns that we saw in the 1990s in Algeria or with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, um, and to an extent the Taliban as well uh, in the 1990s. So you can say, in a sense, that jihadism has reverted to a a localized um, kind of aspiration where these actors are seeking to govern within the kind of confines of the, of the nation states in which they're operating. So you could almost say it's like an Islamo-nationalism, if we want to, to, to call it that. Islamic State remains the last, you could say, or the only at the moment, of the global jihad uh, movements, which still regularly talks about conquering Rome and Constantinople and having its uh, members march through the streets of Paris in conquest. I mean, that you know, kind of iconography. So when you strip it all down, ultimately, this comes down to your understanding about your relationship or your group's relationship with power. The Islamic State would accuse the Taliban of heresy, of betrayal, to have negotiated with the United States to seek diplomatic and international recognition, to work within the internationalist system. It's all anathema to Islamic State. So there are these gradations. And I think if you put the Taliban at that spectrum now of the Islamo-nationalist movement and Islamic State at the global jihad end of the spectrum, where Al-Qaeda sits today is probably still the most interesting question. Because yes, it is on a journey. It is becoming pragmatic in what it wants to do. But pragmatism doesn't mean moderation. I suppose if those were the two poles, the Taliban and 
Islamic State on, on our spectrum, then Al-Qaeda is kind of floating somewhere uh, between the two. And Nabi? Taliban uh, has a duality. One is their policy folks sitting in Qatar and, you know, or in Islamabad, if you will, taking policy guidance. Then there's the everyday Talib, the, the guy who, who fights. If you really strip it down, they're not ideologically very different from ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda because they still do go back to this classic idea that there is no borders in, in the Islamic Caliphate. The Ummah, the whole of the Muslim community, are one. You know, they, somebody mentioned that um, the ISIS were looking down upon the Taliban when they started negotiating with the U.S. That's the political story we hear. But then you hear, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates group all congratulating um, the Taliban warmly on their victory. What does it say? It says we share something in common. I believe that Taliban are the most important actor when it comes to these groups. Sudaf, you know, I, I spoke to the Taliban uh, myself last last week, and they said it's going to be okay for female journalists. It's going to be, you know, this is Taliban 2.0. What would you say to that? That simply is not correct. The reporter that interviewed the Taliban live on air on Tolo just left for the fear of her life last week. And that was their indication to the international community and to the local population that they were willing to work with female journalists. The reality is that is not correct. My female counterparts here, local journalists in Afghanistan, do not feel safe to report on the field. They cannot do a live on a street in Kabul because they will be attacked by the Taliban. There is no support for them. For foreign journalists such as myself, there is incredible support. They had an off-the-record meeting with us and my male counterparts, asking us how we can uh, work with them and if there's any support we need on the ground. And within the end of the meeting, we were all given a paperwork to show any Taliban member on the street that we are freely able to move uh, across Kabul and even the provinces without receiving any threats or any backlash. But Afghan journalists do not get the same level of security. They are really putting women at the back in terms of whether it be education, journalism, doctors are leaving. This Taliban contingent does not support women in the reality. It's not what we're seeing on the ground. Shiraz Sudaf is saying that she is not seeing any of this new Taliban, but you think they're, they're going to do things differently this time? It's clear to me that the Taliban does regard this as a moment uh, and an opportunity. So I think the Taliban will look now to uh, reach out at some level. You will probably see this duality of approach. So the way they treat Afghanis, try to run their society, I think we will see some regression back to what we might call the old Taliban. But there's certainly a slicker version that is sitting there that's outward facing, that is trying to suggest this is a more moderate, it's a more sort of thinking movement now than it has been in the past. And you can see that with you know, this very savvy English-speaking spokesman who's been put up on Al Jazeera several times since uh, the Taliban's uh, come back. It's, you know, it's a shock to see. Well, talking about spokespeople or PR and propaganda, there's an obvious media opportunity right now, isn't there? 20 years since 9-11. Do you think they're going to take advantage of that? 
the Taliban are, of course, uh, they're happy. They are cheering the US withdrawal. They are, you know, in a sense, intelligently trolling the United States. Taliban's got a lot to do right now, right? So they are confronted with the challenge of actually governing. And, and you know, it's not the most exhilarating thing or a thing that lends itself most readily to, to propaganda. I don't think they've got anything to necessarily gain out of making hay or celebrating 9-11, you know, two decades on. And Nabi? They were fully engaged in propaganda once they had one or two districts and then when they had provincial capitals, the propaganda went through the roofs. So their past records show that they rely on propaganda heavily, and they have had much success. So for anyone to think that they are not going to exploit this one uh, to, you know, to show the world, the Taliban really want to remove American memory from that landscape. Uh, now, they also get a lot of support from some of the regional actors. Uh, I think in the way to cause humiliation for the U.S. and for the West in general, uh, the incidents uh, that occurred uh, at the airport, the broader aspects really had to do with political behind-the-scenes staging. Uh, the U.S. was not to leave clean. Sudaf, is this anniversary important? The Taliban are trying to really remove the American footprint here. So I'm not quite sure whether they will be really focusing on 9-11 here because they want to remove the American stamp from Afghanistan. And also, away from the Taliban, Afghans here are actually really quite tired of the significant pull the Americans have had and the damage that they've done to the country. If you ask somebody that wasn't even born during 9-11, but they are still very aware of the damage that's that event caused the country and their parents. I think the Taliban are very strategic here. They're trying to look at their comms for that day to see how should they really approach that. I think, to be honest with you, they're going to be very strategic. I don't think it's going to be a significant focus. Emerita, what do you think? This is a huge boon for just the global jihadist movement in general. I would agree with Sadaf that I think the Taliban is going to be very strategic about this. You know, they want the U.S. footprint off of Afghanistan soil and they need, you know, some level of, of Western cooperation, of U.S. cooperation, of international cooperation. So I think they're going to play this very strategically. But at the same time, foreign fighters, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, other uh, terrorist groups are going to really, you know, I see potentially pose a threat on 9-11 and after that, because they see this as a huge victory, huge propaganda, huge recruitment tool, and an empowerment of, of their soldiers. So what's emerging here is a really fascinating picture of a process that is moving really quickly and is very complicated, and nobody can predict what's going to happen next. But let's try. The one question that many people are probably asking is, what does this mean for the safety of the world? Has the risk increased? Shiraz, are we in more danger? So I've been saying to everyone, you know, in the context of these debates, that that's not a question you can ask. It doesn't have an answer. Because what metrics are we going to use to judge? Are we safer? Do I think parts of Afghanistan will become slightly more accommodating and become slightly more permissive environment for, you know, uh, unsafe reactors, for terrorists to train uh, and so on? Yes, I think... Uh, you know, that's always been one of the worries, having these safe havens where attack planning and so on can take place. However, 
is it in the Taliban's interest to allow a group to really proliferate in their territory today that wants to pull off another 9-11 tomorrow? Of course not. My opinion clear that, that the uh, jihadist movement more generally, of which the Taliban is one part, has learned over the last two decades that if you can avoid sucking the West into a war in your local region, that localism aspect of the jihadist current, then, then you've generally got a pretty good ability to sustain a, a project there and a governance project there. So the Taliban really has something uh, that it's always craved. It's holding more territory now than it ever has done. So they would be incredibly foolish. That doesn't prevent wild cards, right? And it doesn't prevent people who may wish to use that territory and go and do something the Taliban has no oversight of. So it's um, the classic academic answer, six of one and half a dozen of the other. Um, I, I think you're right. You know, the Taliban have managed to get something they didn't think they were going to get and they don't want it broken. Emerita, what do you think? Do you think we're going to get another 9-11? I think we are less safe. Um, I think the Kabul attack is an example. I mean, it was a, it was a target and, and ISIS-K was able to take advantage of that. The withdrawal will have an immense impact in terms of global security, U.S. security. The the threats will no longer be coming from the Taliban, but we have ISIS-K. We have sort of a witch's brew in the region, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, that I think could really uh, be threatening to uh, to global security. And I also think that, you know, without boots on the ground, um, intelligence, counterterrorism operations are certainly taking a hit. So now there's going to be this over-the-horizon or offshore counterterrorism approach that's going to be very different from what we're used to. And so I think that's also going to provide some groups with the operational space to recruit, to train, and to, and to plot attacks. And Nebi? We don't know whether the world will be safe, less safe or more safe, given the Taliban's um, policy statements and given some of the contradictions uh, that have already been surfacing. Uh, with those statements. While it's a bad day for the technocrats in Kabul, for the academia, for the artists, for the scholars, and and for the international community, but when you go to the provinces where majority of the people live, when you you go to Kandahar today, when you go to Ghazni and you go to Lagman, you go to all these remote regions where the war was mostly taking its toll, those regions are celebrating. Now, is Afghanistan going to be safe economically is a very different question. Is Afghanistan going to be safe strategically, regionally? Those are different questions. But in terms of uh, your, your question, will, will there be another 911? I think that is a $1 million question and, and events are, are to unfold it. It's probably more than a million dollars for that question. Finally, Sudaf, I'm going to ask you to do something you're told not to do in interviews, and that's to speculate. I mean, you're in Kabul right now. What are your instincts telling you about the immediate future? What does it look like? I think it's not what we think it will be. I think the Taliban will give us many surprises along the road. I have been here just under a month. I have really, I speak to them every day. They are very committed to bring Afghanistan into an Islamic emirate, but they're one that can engage with the international community. That's what they're proposing. But I also know this will come at a great sacrifice to the people here. Already people are seeing major drawbacks. I mean, the amount of people that have left, this is going to cause a significant challenge for Afghanistan in terms of economically, strategically, there are going to be many roadblocks along the way. 
But I th also think there is some semblance of hope. The Taliban are not interested in being completely destructive. They know that they need this country to function. And with that, they need international support. It's just how they play that. And if they can really get some control in all the provinces, if they can get the engagement from, say, the corporate end to what is going on in Afghanistan, they could be a functioning state. But I also know this is going to take many, many years. Emerita, what do you think? A really important question and factor to think about is how countries will engage with Afghanistan moving forward. Um, and I think from a U.S. and a Western perspective, it's going to be really interesting to think about the kind of leverage that we may have um, with Afghanistan being ruled by the Taliban in terms of thinking around you know, human rights and humanitarian issues and, and the like, because we still have some level of, of political leverage and some level of financial leverage, um, because the U.S. you know, still has sanctions on the Taliban. The U.N. also has sanctions on the Taliban. And there's certainly going to be an interest in you know, the flow of money and goods you know, coming into the country. And I think that's something that's going to be important for the Taliban and thinking about its own political future and you know, the future of its economy, et cetera. So I think that's going to be really important moving forward. You know, and I also wonder, you know, what the, the role of the U.N. will be in this process um, in thinking about, you know, the, the past UNAMA, um, the U.N. mission in Afghanistan, and also just the future of, of terrorism and the counterterrorism operations that will take place moving forward. Um, I think it's going to be really important to see what the Russians will do and what the Chinese will do and the Iranians and the like and, and how that's going to boil and manifest. The United States and, and the global community has invested so much in Afghanistan and the future of Afghanistan. You know, we withdrew, but we can't turn our backs because we, the last thing we want is a failed state. Um, you know, and Afghanistan is in a volatile region, you know, and thinking about, you know, counterterrorism, it's really important that we maintain some level of operation and eyes and ears to understand what's happening. Um, and then I'll say also on the humanitarian side, I mean, you have Afghan refugees traveling across the country. This is not going to be, you know, something that we forget about overnight or five or 10 years. This is going to be a consistent um, issue that we'll have to tackle. Shiraz, we all need to think about what's going to happen next, right? Because it really does affect everyone. It should care. We've been in there for, for the last two decades. That reason alone, um, you know, is, is, is a reason to care. But look, I mean... What has happened, the reasons we went in, you know, these have all been incredibly uh, consequential. 9-11 has uh, shaped the world in, in, in many, many uh, different ways. I wouldn't say, you know, it changed everything. But, you know, we, we live with all of the various consequences uh, day to day. So Afghanistan matters for that reason. Nebi, I know you don't live there anymore, but it is your country. And you've devoted your life to try and understand conflict and making other people understand it. So can you tell us what do we need to remember? Afghanistan matters for historical reasons. Whenever it's abandoned or, or bullied or, or, or attempts were made to control it, uh, the history is plain. The end results are bad for Afghanistan itself primarily and then secondarily for the region. And now, given the interconnected nature of the world, bad for the world. So when you look at historically, all these people have come and have established artificial roots there without really getting to the, to the truth of the land, the truth of the culture, the truth of the people. Who really wins Afghanistan over matters? If it left to its own, uh, who's going to win it? Russia, China, India, 
or a collectivity of groups like ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda and others coming, because ultimately Afghanistan is a landlocked country. It relies on the international world. So whomever uses it is going to have to be careful because it has ramifications for the whole world. I'd like to thank Sudaf Chowdhury, Emerita Torres, Nabi Sahak, and Shiraz Meir for their insight into this complex and dynamic situation happening in Afghanistan right now for our special edition of Taking Apart Terror. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the series, please do leave us a star rating and a review. It makes a huge difference to how many people find us. And of course, follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Adnan Sawa. Till the next time, goodbye.